When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, well, we are continuing the story of Hannibal Barker and his great campaign against the Romans at the end of the 3rd century BC, the Second Punic War. You might remember from our back catalogue, we've done a few episodes on Hannibal Barker already, quite a few of them, with the legendary expert, that is Dr. Louis Rawlings from the University of Cardiff. Well, I'm delighted to say that Louis is back on the podcast today to continue the Hannibal story. And yes, I mean continue, because last time we chatted to Louis, we ended at Hannibal's first great victory against the Romans at the Battle of the River Trebia in December 218 BC. And in this episode, the first of a new mini-series with Louis on Hannibal in Italy proper, we're going to be going from the aftermath of the Battle of the River Trebia all the way down to Hannibal's next great clash against the Romans the following year in 217 BC, roughly around this time of year in 217 BC, the Battle of Lake Trasimene. Louis, it was wonderful to get him back on the podcast. He's such a brilliant, enthusiastic speaker when it comes to Hannibal and his great campaign against Rome. I've got no doubt that you're absolutely going to love this one. So without further ado, to talk all about Hannibal and his great ambush at the Battle of Lake Trasimene, here's Louis. Louis, it is great to have you back on the podcast. Tristan, it's absolutely wonderful to be here face-to-face with you now. Face-to-face, exactly. We're doing it in person and we're continuing our Hannibal story we did the rise of Hannibal and crossing the Alps and the Battle of the River Trebia last time. Now we're getting, this is really the start now, what we're talking about next, his great war against Rome, isn't it? Indeed it is. And, you know, the next couple of years of campaigning that Hannibal does really set the tone. They're the most famous years of the Second Punic War and Hannibal's military genius, as people have admired it ever since, these are the campaigns that really stand out as being the most engaging, the most fascinating and obviously the most threatening to the Romans as well. So this is a really critical period and it's great to be able to talk about it. Well, let's delve into it now. So the end of 218 BC, beginning of 217 BC. Louis, take it away, a bit of background. What's the situation with Hannibal? What's the situation with Italy at this time? So Hannibal has just won the Battle of Trebia and effectively destroyed two Roman armies. The remainder are holed up in one of the Roman colonies in Cisalpine Gaul, which is now hostile territory. So Cisalpine Gaul had only recently been conquered by the Romans and subdued only in the late 220s. And now in 218, some four years later, the whole countryside is in revolt. The main tribes, the Insubres and the Boi, have gone over to Hannibal. So Hannibal spends the winter... Recovering from that epic march across southern France, across the Alps, and down to fight that winter battle against the Romans at Trebia. And his army has really been knocked about by that. And so he needs to spend some time recovering. Also, his elephants have died, or most of them have died, because of the severity of the winter. Certainly in the aftermath of Trebia, that winter really closes in and a lot of his troops 
and horses and particularly the elephants perish in the severe conditions in the weeks after the battle. So he has to kind of rebuild and he has to reach out to the Gauls who are quite happy to have him. They were in revolt from the Romans anyway. They were expecting him to come and join him. And so now he, there he was. He's demonstrated that he can defeat Romans in the field. And so he's enthusiastically embraced by the Gallic tribes and he is able to recruit many, many thousands of Gauls during the winter and start to put together uh, an expeditionary force which will head south into Italy. So we've got this small Roman force holed up in Placentia, which is the uh, main, very recent Roman colony. It's Monte Piacenza, isn't it? Yeah, well? yeah, that's River. right. Yeah. And so it's up there and it's only really been established for a couple of years. And, that, and now it's just basically got a Roman force in there that uh, is keeping alive essentially by riverboat traffic and supplies are coming into a not a completely besieged city because Hannibal doesn't really have the resources to besiege this Roman army at this point. But he's kind of ignoring it, really. And he's moving around the Allies and recruiting and, and settling things and settling affairs to his kind of advantage. So the Romans themselves in Italy, south of the Po plains, is still in Roman hands. And the Romans are beginning to marshal forces and troops and to recruit large numbers of legions to continue their campaign. So they're expecting the Carthaginians to maybe make some moves against some of the other parts of the Roman domain in Italy. So the Romans have raised troops, they've sent them to Sicily, they've reinforced uh, a garrison in Sardinia. So they're expecting some operations there. They've already got a Roman army in, that's marched to Spain and they've sent Publius Cornelius Scipio, who survived the Battle of Trebia, out to Spain to command that force. And he will be campaigning in the sidelines now, and we won't be concerned with him in these podcasts, but he's out there engaging Hannibal's brother, Hasdrubal, who remains in Spain. So that's the main situation. The Romans apparently raised 10 more legions this year. So that's another 40,000 troops. That's, unpre that's almost unprecedented in Roman history, that many in one year. Absolutely, yeah. So this may not be a completely accurate figure, but nevertheless, it shows that the Romans are really gearing up for this war now. And they send out two armies. They, they realize that the geography of Italy is very important and that it conditions the way the campaign is going to be run. So they send out two armies. Firstly, they send out a Western army and then they send out an Eastern army as well. These are under consuls. So they're consular armies of about two legions, which will be 8,400 8,600, 8,800, around about that number of Roman citizens, plus some cavalry, and also an equivalent number of allies. So these armies are going to be in the region of about 20,000 men. In fact, the Western army we know appears to be about 25,000 men. Extra cavalry is recruited for both of these armies because they know that Hannibal's army has a very large cavalry contingent. So these two armies are sent north to defend against Hannibal's advance. Now, this is where we have to talk a little bit about the geography of yes. Italy. So if you in your mind's eye, you can imagine Italy as a long peninsula. It's, a, it's this big, long leg with Sicily as a football at the end. And it stretches from the northwest down to the southeast. Running down the middle of that, south of the Po Plains, but heading essentially down and dividing the peninsula into two halves, is a mountain chain called the Apennines very uplands, very wide. And consequently, when we think about Italy, we think about it really as two coastal strips. We've got a western side, which has Etruria, 
And below that is Rome and then Latium, which is the old core of Roman territory and Roman allies. And then beyond that, there's Campania. And beyond that, there are other places as well. We won't need to get to those. And then down the eastern side, on the other side of the Apennines, so if you're looking at it from Rome, they're the kind of over the mountains side. We have a kind of easy access from the Po Valley down into old Gallic tribal territories, which the Romans called the Agar Gallicus, the Roman lands, because they've taken them off them in the 280s and they still kind of ethnically sort of talk about them. Then beyond that, there's Picenum and then Samnium and then Apulia. And then we're down to the heel of Italy. And then there are some Greek cities and things. So, but we won't get that far. This is very important because it means if Hannibal decides to march down the eastern coast, he will then have to cross the Apennines to get at anything on the western coast and vice versa. So the Apennines play a very interesting role in the campaign in the next two years and indeed Hannibal's whole adventures in Italy. They play a really significant role in terms of conditioning how armies move, where armies are placed to try and cut off advances. So the Romans have put these two armies separated by the Apennines, one in the east, one in the west. The eastern army is at Ariminum or modern day Rimini and the western army is in Aretium, modern day Arezzo. So that's the situation. They're commanded by two Roman consuls, as I said. So we've got the Western army is commanded by Gaius Flaminius, and the Eastern army is commanded by Gnaeus Servilius Geminus. Flaminius is the most important, more important of these two for two reasons. One is that he's the one who's going to engage Hannibal first and therefore is going to be showing his military chops or lacks of them first, lack of them first. And secondly, because he has a lot of history with this region. So just to fill him in, he's very significant in the sources because they are very hostile to him. So Livy and Polybius and all the other sources really don't like him. They call him a demagogue. They see him as a populist. He's rash. He's militarily incompetent, according to Polybius. And so consequently, he's going to be set up for a fall. Is he kind of like is he kind of like how Sempronius Longus is portrayed before him? Are they yeah, both portrayed yeah, very, yeah. very the, the person who lost the battle of the River yeah. Trebia for the Romans? So yeah. there's a, there's there is a pattern there. coming out, and we will see that in when we come to Cannae in the next podcast when we talk about Varro. Mm. But Flaminius is the worst of the three, I think, in terms of the way that he's kind of demonized. He's a bit impious as well. He doesn't do all the rituals that he's supposed to do before he marches out to campaign. So he's basically lambasted by the sources. But there is a problem with this, and that is that he is <laughs> He got himself elected to consul. Not only that, but this is the second time that he's made it to consul. And in between, he's been censor, which is the highest office in the land. So he must have had senatorial support. Now, why does he get elected in 217, even if he's kind of got support, but is a terrible general? Well, you have to go back a little bit to his past history. So in 232, as a tribune, he passed legislation that parceled up the Agar Gallicus for Roman settlement. Right? This apparently provoked the Boii into renewing hostilities. The Boii are a Gallic tribe. They're in that one region. of the Gallic right. tribes to the north of this region because they think that this is basically ethnic cleansing. There were Gauls on this territory. They've been subdued and they've been passive to the Romans, but they've been basically pacified for 50 years. Flaminius basically is clearing them off the land, and this is creating all kinds of hardship and resentment. So the boy and the Inspirais get together a large army. They recruit from over the Alps, force called the Gaisati, and they head south. In 225, they make this campaign where they smash a Roman army at Faisulae. They then get defeated at Telamon. That's then followed by Roman campaigns to conquer 
Cisalpine Gaul. So that in kind of revenge, it's a trigger that allows the Romans to go north and invade the Po Valley and to defeat things. And in that, in 223, Flaminius is the consul who defeats the Insubres at the river Adua, even though Polybius says it wasn't his fault. His deployment was terrible. Apparently, he deployed his army having crossed a river, and so he had an army, a river to his back. Now, we've seen that at Trebia for Sempronius Longus. Yeah. There were lots of parallels here. So, Plippius says, actually, that it was his military officers that won the battle, not Flaminius. But he then goes on to become censor in 220, and then as censor, he's able to allot money to build roads, and he builds the Via Flaminia, which runs from Rome all the way up to Ariminum, which is through the Agagallicus up to that northeastern part of the Roman possessions. So he's in 217, when Hannibal is about to march south, who better to choose than a Gallic northern specialist, somebody who's defeated the Insubrace, somebody who knows the territory of around Ariminum extremely well, having parceled it up and built roads through it. You know, he's a natural mm. choice to be the general to coordinate the campaign to hold Hannibal back. Plus, Hannibal was coming south with lots of Gauls. He's the man of the hour. He's he the, man the man of the hour. hour he is he? the Gallic specialist. Mm. So I think it's a really fascinating individual from that perspective. And that rubs up against this whole negative characterization we get in the sources. And he seems quite a natural person to lead this campaign. So that's why I think he's important. And so in the early spring of 217, the Roman armies are in place and Hannibal prepares to cross um, or to advance against them. So does he take the eastern route, try to force his way past Ariminum and then get on the Via Flaminia and maybe head to Rome, or maybe head down that Adriatic coast and down those plains and take those cities that way? Or does he head into Etruria, old enemies of the Romans from 50, 60, 70 years earlier and try and kind of maybe stir up some support there? This is the route he decides to so, take. So, yes. So which route does he decide to take then, Louis? The route into Etruria. Oh, okay. okay. There are different ways to get into Etruria from the north, but most of them involve crossing the Apennines at some point. So we think that he possibly, um, we don't know which one he took. We just know that Polybius says that he took the most direct of the routes and the one that was quickest, but also least well guarded. So in other words, it was a difficult advance, probably over some quite high territory. If he headed due south through from, say, Bologna or thereabouts heading south, he would have headed towards Florence and taken the Colline Pass. So that's where we think he probably took. And he emerges from the Apennines sometime in May, probably of 217 with a large army. So now he's got around about 50,000 men. So remember that when he crossed the Alps, he only had 26,000 men by his own account, which Polybius looked up when he saw some evidence that Hannibal had set up an inscription in southern Italy in 205 BC. So Hannibal claims to have had 26,000 men, but he comes into Italy proper, into Etruria with 50,000 men. 10,000 cavalry, 40,000 infantry. So he must have recruited around about 20,000 Gauls. So half of his army is Gallic now. Okay. So marching south, he gets to the river Arno. It's a, a very marshy area. It's the spring, so the, tire, the, the river is up. It's been flooding. And the crossing of the Arno and the marshes around it are, are completely horrible. Sources say that it was a four to five day journey. The water was quite deep around the men, but 
that Hannibal had reconnoitred the area to make sure that there was firm footing by the route that he took. But nevertheless, the men couldn't sleep. They really struggled. Polybius claims that a lot of the pack animals perished. And in fact, people were sleeping on top of dead pack animals in order to keep themselves dry overnight. Hannibal himself caught ophthalmia and lost the use of one of his eyes in this. And this prompts lots of later Latin poets to call him a cyclops and one-eyed Gaetulian and all these kinds of derogatory terms thereafter. He loses his eye crossing the Alps. He rode up on top of the one remaining elephant, apparently, to keep himself dry. And so the crossing is very difficult. There are some derogatory things said in our sources about the Gauls in, in their march. They're not used to this hard marching. You know, their armies tend to move at a kind of leisurely pace. And this Hannibal's really forcing the route, forcing the pace and through very hostile climate and very hostile sort of territory, really. Um, and so the Gauls really suffer, apparently, and would have deserted had not Hannibal actually centred them in the middle of his army <laughs> and put cavalry behind. The Numidians kind of drove the Gauls on. Um, this is all part of a stereotype of the Gauls being, you know, soft and, and not really capable of, of enduring Italian climates. They're used to the cold north, and when it gets a bit warm or a bit difficult, they kind of want to give up. I think it's mostly a stereotype. But nevertheless, Hannibal gets across the Arno and camps for a couple of days at Faisulae, which is where the Gauls had won a battle in 225. So now we're getting some sort of correlations. You know, if Hannibal wants to think about a route, all he has to do is ask the Gauls, which route did you take or which, you know, where are good places to stop in Etruria, given that they'd been campaigning there eight years earlier. So I think the reason why he marches through the Middle Arno and crosses the marshes and, and stops at Faisalay is, is to do with Gallic support, Gallic information, maybe even Gallic opportunism, saying Etruria is a good place to plunder. If you're after booty, then that's the place to go. Mm. And this is what the Hannibal then does. He spends the next few days marching south, plundering the wealth of Etruria, really causing a scene and trying to get the attention of the Romans. Mm. So Flaminius is nearby Arezzo and finds that Hannibal actually marches past him at heading south. And his officers apparently advise him to just harass Hannibal's army. But Flaminius, because he's this headstrong, rash, militarily incompetent kind of guy, he decides he's going to try and bring Hannibal to battle. And so pursues him with his army, leaves Arezzo and heads south after Hannibal. And they get quite close. So they're about a day behind in terms of the marches. So Hannibal looks like he's heading for Rome. And at this point, we wonder what's going to happen. Now, Hannibal decides suddenly to swerve left, as it were, swerve east as he's heading south. So he leaves the road to Rome and he heads east. So almost towards the Apennine Mountains yeah, in the middle. Yeah, again, right. yeah, okay, absolutely, yes. towards those. Now, this would play directly into Flaminius's hands because Flaminius has been in communication with Geminus, the other consul, and Geminus's army. And it's clear that Geminus's army has been on the march. As soon as they know that Hannibal has crossed the Apennines into Etruria, Geminus has mobilised and he's, he's heading south and west to join Flaminius. In 225, the Gauls have been caught by Roman armies marching in from opposite directions and have been surrounded and destroyed. This seems to be what Flaminius is hoping for, that Hannibal now is swerving towards Geminus and with Flaminius behind, they can engage him. Flaminius' army is only 25,000 men, so it's not as big as Hannibal's army. So by all accounts, he ought not to really try and engage Hannibal in a pitched battle. So maybe he is rash and militarily incompetent, or maybe he's just shadowing Hannibal and making sure that he heads in a way that the Roman armies can kind of surround Hannibal and get together and crush him. 
So the night of the 20th of June, Flaminius camps outside of nearby Lake Trasimene. Whereabouts is Lake Trasimene then are we talking? Yeah, so Lake Trasimene is still more or less in Etruria. It's on the eastern side, really, of Etruria. And it's a famously large lake. And it's quite important. We're not entirely sure where the battle takes place that will take place the following day. Spoilers, yeah, yeah. Spoilers, yeah. (laughs) But... We do know that the geography and modern Italian uh, sort of sightseers are directed to the geography of this place. If you go and visit, you, you, there are various places that are that are marked out. So we rather suspect that it's the northern side of the lake that is where the battle took place. Now, if you think about the geography of this place, quite an interesting geography. If you imagine the lake running in a large kind of rectangular shape, the northern side has an entry point which is quite narrow where hills come down those hills then extend around and form a plane or essentially like a bowl that's placed on the top of this rectangle so you have a curve of uh, high ground um, and then at the far end at the eastern end of the lake there is another kind of narrowing a pinch point Okay, Um, so there are various debates about whether or not the battle took place in the whole of the plain or whether it's a narrower part of the the plain that that it it took place. It's complicated by the fact that probably the shoreline has moved as well and has receded. So there's probably more space now than there was uh, in the third century BC. So we come to the day of the battle and Flaminius' army marches out to continue tracking Hannibal's army. So it's camped outside of the first of these pinch points, the entry point to this bowl. And the first thing that happens, according to our hostile sources, is that the Roman standards refuse to be pulled out of the ground and Flaminius orders them to be dug out of the ground. So there's an omen for you, if anything. Whether we believe that or not is neither here nor there. If it's clay, then it you know might well be quite difficult to get this stuff out. Anyway, Flaminius's army marches on to pursue Hannibal and presumably to sort of see where he's running away to, trying to avoid the Roman army. I guess if you if you want to be optimistic about what the situation is from the Roman point of view, they enter through a sort of fairly low but narrow entranceway onto the plain behind is against the northern side of the lake and walk through lake mists that have risen overnight and in dawn so they can't really see very much it's quite misty but they're marching along and their column probably is a few miles long it's a typical roman marching column with the baggage in the middle and the troops all deployed in various ways it's probably extraordinary so these are chosen latin allies at the beginning of the army and the van and then the legions and allies kind of interspersed amongst each other. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950 to 53 called the Forgotten War? This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we remember the war the world forgot. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. These legions, so we can really picture them, I mean, how would they have been armed? What was the Roman army, the standard equipment at that time? So Roman army is divided into two halves. Essentially, there's a Roman citizen body who form the legions, and then there are allies that are drawn all over Italy. Often they're drawn from the sort of theatre of operational nearby allied areas. And those allies are, tend to fight by now, after centuries of integration into the Roman army, they tend to look a bit like the Roman legions, but they may well have their own distinct approaches to equipment and decoration and maybe even fighting styles. But essentially, we can treat them as legions light, as it were. And they are organised in cohorts and they are organised in two wings. So ally, uh, the Roman, Roman word for that. So they are essentially two lumps of troops. But the best of them, about 1,200 of them, are called extraordinary, and they are recruited to do all kinds of special duties for the consul. And so they're creamed off the top of the Allies and put in their own special unit. And one of their roles is to operate in the van of the march and to go off and do special missions, that kind of thing, guard the consul's tent and that sort of stuff. The Roman legions themselves are structured by age. So there are four categories of troops. The Youngest end are the levees, the light infantry, who are generally javelin-armed men. They may or may not have had shields at this point, but certainly by the end of the war, they will have shields. There will be some kind of reform of the levees, the light infantry, at some point in about 211. Maybe it's a full-scale reform, maybe it's just an ad hoc adjustment, but we're not sure. After that, they tend to be called velites, but at this point, we'll call them just light infantry. So they're in each legion of 4,200 men. There were about 1,200 of these young guys. And their role is to skirmish and to throw things at the enemy until at such time as the grown-ups get ready for, for proper fighting. So these guys are probably 17, 18, 19-year-olds. Mm. They're, wow. they're the youngest, but also they're the poorest, according to Polybius. So you can 
be a young man and then progress up through. But if you're too poor, you might just be remain a light infantryman for much of your career, depending on how lucky you are with booty and stuff. So it's the youngest and the poorest who form the velites. Behind that, in any formation, the Romans tend to have these light infantry in the front and then three lines organised by age. And these are the line infantry who will engage in hand-to-hand fighting. Um, firstly, we have a group called the Hastati, who are the sort of early 20s-somethings. They are armed with a large body covering shield, a scutum, and a couple of peeler, heavy throwing spears, uh, and a sword. And their role is to engage the enemy after the skirmishes have withdrawn and hopefully win the battle. If they can't break the enemy, then they are reinforced by the next line of late 20s, early 30s-somethings, who are called the Principes, men in the prime of their life, lots of experience from military campaigns before. They will join in at some point and come up through the lines and just drive the enemy back. If that doesn't happen, which it normally does, then it comes to the Triari, to paraphrase a Roman saying for things are getting really desperately bad. Yeah, yeah. 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 When, if it gets to the triari, then things are getting bad. So the triari are the old men, the old timers, up to about the age of 40. They are armed differently from the Hastatian Principes who are armed the same. They have a scutum, a body covering shield like the others, but they have, instead of a throwing spear, thrusting spears at this point and a sword. So they tend to form a, a hedge, and there are not as many of them. So there are only 600 triari in a legion, at 1,200 velites or uh, leves, and then the rest of the legion is divided equally between Hastati and Principes. So these guys will only commit if the battle is going badly, and often when the rest of the army is collapsing or running away, they will rise up from where they've been kneeling or sitting mm. and advance into a conflict. And this third line is often the thing that will determine victory or defeat. These are older men. They're not going to be running around. They're not so energetic. So they just sit around until they're needed, essentially. <laughs> and they're not going to run away either because they're too old to. You know, you, you haven't got as much stamina when you get into your late 30s as you do when you're in your young 20s. So these are guys who uh, are stable veterans. They've seen it all. But also they're not going to run away because they're too old to <laughs> really. Not, their chances of running away against, you know, if they're being pursued by 20-somethings, it's very, very dangerous for them. So they're going to fight for as long as they possibly can. So that's how each legion is structured internally. And the battle, Roman battle line, therefore, is what's called a triplex acies with these three lines of line infantry and then skirmishes in, in the front of the sort of fourth line ahead with cavalry on the wings. And... The Roman legions tend to deploy with legions in the centre, allies on the wings, and then cavalry beyond that on, on the far wings. So that's a standard sort of deployment. And so thank you for explaining that. Slight tangent from your story, I know. Yeah. So let's therefore go back to the story. We now know how this Roman army is looking. You've already explained how the Carthaginian army, you've got Carthaginians, Libyans, Numidians, but lots of ghouls there. Yeah. So talk us through the battle itself. Yeah, so oh, the okay. triplex is isn't in this battle ah. <laughs> you see because they're all still marching because they're in their marching column yeah they're in a marching yeah. column they're all strung out uh, by legion and consequently they're marching along this northern coast of lake trasmine so they've got the lake on their right hand side their weapon hand side as it were and they're marching and suddenly the column stops because it's encountered at the exit as it were of this bowl they've encountered hannibal's line infantry hannibal's veterans who have been the core of his army since he was a teenager, from Spain all the way through, across the Pyrenees Alps, the victors of Trebia. These are the guys that they encounter. So there are a mix of Africans and Iberians. 
So the Iberians are Spaniards who have been recruited by Hannibal himself. These are well-experienced, very experienced kind of guys. And they are there to hold the line and they're holding high ground and they're holding narrow ground as well to stop the Romans getting out of what turns out to be a trap. Because in the night, Hannibal had arranged the rest of his army along the whole of the bowl edge. So all on the high ground above the lake. So as the Romans bump into the front, the rear of their column has already entered through the first sort of bottleneck. And it's at that point that the rear discovers that actually the Carthaginian cavalry has suddenly descended upon them. There's probably the Carthaginian light infantry, which is a mix of javelin throwers and spearmen of various sorts. There's this slightly odd word, longchoferoi, um, which we talked about in the previous podcast. The longchoferoi means spear bearers, and there's various ways to translate that word. Sometimes it's translated as pikemen, but I think it's highly unlikely that these are pikemen because light infantry throwing pikes, it doesn't work. Um, and operate with pikes you lose your advantage so i think they are spear throwers and also some balearic slingers but the rest of the line the whole of the sort of northern edge and so essentially what's covering the middle of the roman army and what will be charging into them are the gauls who have been waiting for this Mm. moment since 225 (laughs) and they've been sharpening their um, swords i'm sure for the whole of that period they charge down of course gauls are really terrifying in their first charge all all ancient sources talk about the the shock and terror of a gallic charge this is where their gauls are very much the strongest they're quite brittle so they don't have much staying power they charge and if you can stand up to them after a bit they weaken the sun gets a bit warm they get a bit fed up you know we've been talked about that stereotype Mm. and then they collapse and that's basically how they work but in their initial rush, like Seguin in the morning, they are getting stronger all the time. They're charging down the hill. So they charge and they get a lot of momentum and they crash into the Roman marching column as it's still trying to react to the fact that it stopped moving, that they know that a fight has started to emerge. So the Romans are caught in this enormous trap. Their only ways of escape are to fight their way out or to try and swim for it. And the lake is absolutely treacherous and a number of Romans are known to have swum out and drowned because they're in their armor. And it's, you know, it's a lake, it's still June and possibly the Roman calendar is slightly out of alignment. So it may even be May, early May. You know, the waters are cold and they get much, much colder as you go in deeper. So people are probably getting cramps and collapsing and, and drowning that way. So the Roman army is essentially attacked from all sides by surprise with an enormous momentum of that Gallic charge and the Carthaginian experience as well. And it's essentially pushed into the water. And the losses are calamitous. The sources say that around about 15,000 of the 25,000 man army are killed on that, in that battle which lasts several hours. Apparently the fighting is so fierce that an earthquake that happens is unnoticed by the soldiers. This is hyperbole, but it's a great story, isn't it? Um, so there's a local earthquake and nobody even notices because they're fighting so hard. And so only about 10,000 escaped. 4,000 are captured. 6,000 cut their way out of the front of the Carthaginian army. As happened at Trebia, the Romans are able to punch through a particular part of the line. And here it's the, the force that was probably more prepared to fight and had the extraordinary in it. And they, they punch their way through and they fight their way to a small village where they hole up. They are then surrounded by Hannibal's cavalry corps and some of the Iberians as well under a guy called Mahabal, who then negotiates their surrender. And that's the end of Flamininus's army, Flaminius's army. And Flaminius himself disappears on the battle, right? However, there is a story that he was recognised by the Gauls 
because of his outlandish helmet. He had something on his helmet that they recognised. And they they spotted him and they went for him and they the, the Gallic cavalry killed him. And his body was never found, presumably because they took his head mm. and stripped his body. But he was never found, but he was recognised. So he got his comeuppance for all of his Gallic interventions, interferences. At least that's a lovely way to end, end his story from a Gallic perspective, of course. So that's the end of that army. But it's not quite the end of the whole operation because... Jaminus's mm, cavalry. I was going yeah, to ask where yeah, Jaminus. Yeah, all this. He, so Jaminus is coming down looking for for Minius, and they're only a couple of days away by all accounts. Or at least the cavalry are only a couple of days away because there is a report that two or three days later, Jaminus's cavalry of four thousand. So this is quite a large force. Encounters Mahabal's cavalry, maybe six to eight thousand. We don't know, and is surrounded. Two thousand are killed. Two thousand are captured, and that's the end of the Roman cavalry in the north. Yeah, Jaminus with no cavalry, can't fight this battle, half an army, you know, an army half the size of Hannibal's. And so he retreats back to Ariminum and leaves Hannibal, therefore, almost master of the north. The victor. Yeah. I mean, Louis, this is great. I mean, because we've got to start wrapping up this Tresmine podcast now that you've, you've explained the battle and the run up to it brilliantly. But why, just as a summary, so why is this battle, this campaign, and his ultimate victory against Flaminius and taking away of Geminus's cavalry, why is this so significant for Hannibal at this time? He needs victories. He has no friend. Apart from the Gauls, he has no friends in Italy. He needs to persuade the Italian allies of the Romans that he is going to win this war. Because what he wants ultimately is to stop the Italians from supporting the Romans and to try and break up the Roman alliance. So that's one significant thing that he is beginning to work on. And in order to promote that, any of the Italians that he captures... He's done it after Trebia, but he does it again after Trasimene. He frees and says, my war is not against you. It's against the Romans. It is we who are disputing the mastery of Italy. You can just stand aside and let us duke it out, as it were. Um, so he playing this propaganda war. So it's very significant because it's extra leverage on, on that. Second thing is it opens up the possibility of a direct march on Rome, should he choose it. And in Rome, there is mass panic. A messenger comes along from the battle and says, we have been defeated in a great battle. And that's all the information he gives. And it's pandemonium. And the Romans then organize uh, a scratch defense and appoint a dictator, an experienced guy called Fabius Maximus. So in terms of Hannibal's victories, he's managed to defeat the Romans. He's managed to get access to Italy now. So now he can start marching through Italy in whichever way he wants. He could head towards Rome or he could now cross the uh, Apennines and start campaigning against uh, some of Rome's allies. He's got some other things to settle as well. He's got 20,000 Gauls in his army and they're not just serving for pay. I mean, they don't like the Romans already and they have got some revenge for Telamon, but there are other things that were on their minds. And one of the things that Hannibal does next, and it seems to be illogical in a way because he could march on Rome He's only a 100 or so miles, 150 miles away from Rome. So he could get there and he could really put pressure. He could potentially end the war immediately um, if the Romans cave in. Um, also, we hear of a Carthaginian fleet of 70 ships that turns up at Pisa on that coast at some point, finds that Hannibal is not there and sails away. So it sounds like uh, at some point early in the uh, Carthaginian strategy, a fleet was meant to hook up with Hannibal and, and help him kind of march down the Etruscan coast. So the, the, we're expecting Hannibal, as it were, to 
you know, get the Etruscans on his side. Perhaps they haven't revolted, but maybe a bit more pressure, maybe advance on Rome, hook up with this fleet and, and campaign that way. That seems like the most logical thing to do. But he heads, he keeps going. So having swerved to Trasimene, which is a beautiful ambush place, he carries on across the Apennines and into Picenum. Now, why does he do that? And why, how does that set up the next part of the campaign? Well, that's a great question to ask, which we're going to do the answers for in our next podcast episode. But Louis, we're going to wrap up that episode there. Absolutely brilliant. Always wonderful to have you on the podcast. And last but certainly not least, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tristan. It's an absolute joy. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Louis Rawlings explaining all about Hannibal and his great clash against the Romans at the Battle of Lake Trasimene in 217 BC. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Louis is such a brilliant guest. You can listen to him all day. And I'm delighted to say that he's going to be coming back on the podcast for a few more follow-up episodes, particularly around that most famous or most infamous of Hannibal's clashes against the Romans, the Battle of Cannae. Stay tuned for episodes on that with Louis just around the corner on the Ancients. Now, in the meantime, if you want more Ancients content, you know what I'm going to say because you can subscribe to our weekly Ancients newsletter via a link in the description below. Every week I write a bit of a blurb for that newsletter saying what's been happening in Team Ancient History Hit World that week. And of course, if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, wherever you get the Ancients from, we, the whole team, well, we'd really greatly appreciate it as we continue to spread these incredible stories from our distant past and get to interview these awesome experts as we continue to spread that reach further and share these stories with as many people as possible. That's why we really love doing it. Anyway, that's enough rambling on from me and I will see you in the next episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.